Recently, I've been reading a lot of biographies about just older saints and church history and the life that they experienced, mostly the hardships that they endured and how their faith, though was shaken, was never destroyed. And I feel like what they would tell us today is their life would be summarized. The way that they persevered was through that line we just sing that I believe you're working all things for good. They had an understanding of God's character and sovereignty that no matter what they went through in their life, no matter what the world threw at them, threw at them, whatever they failed at, or what happened internally in their family, if they lost someone they loved, if something didn't go the way they thought it would, if a sickness hit or struck their family, whatever it was for them, they believed that God was bigger than that and able to work it together for their good. And that comes right out of the Bible in Romans 8:28, where Paul tells us this: that we know. Everyone say no. We know that God works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Not an if, not a maybe, not a good chance. We know that. That is a guaranteed promise by God that we can bank on. And because of that, we can do what that song says. We can take everything that we're holding, everything that we're worried about, everything that is bearing down on us, and we can lay it at his feet. Because listen, it's better at the feet of Jesus than in our hands. You don't want anyone else dealing with that other than him today. And he wants to take that from you and to hold it and take care of it because only he can and he will. Amen. Will you pray with me before we continue? God, thank you for that promise today. That you are big enough to take whatever we experience or go through and to work it together for our good and for your glory. God, it may not always look as we thought it would. It may not look the way that we want it to look. But Lord, momentary disappointment does not mean that you failed us. It just means a story is still being written and you're still working. And we thank you that you're a God that will not let us be put to shame. We're thank you for a promise like Romans 8, 28 to just know this, that it's gonna be okay. Whatever we're going through, in this room, online, it's going to be okay because he's working. So let us take what's on our heart, what's weighing us down, let us lay at the feet of Jesus, cast it on him, and trust him with that as he calls us to. Lord, be with us in this moment, in this time today. Help us not be distracted but give us ears to listen and hearts to receive your word. Help us to settle in this moment, to meet with us, because that's what we need above all else today. We need to meet with you and hear from you. So God, speak. We're listening. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Well, good morning, Journey. Before you take a seat, go ahead and say happy 4th of July to someone around you. Thank all those people in the room that are deciding to do fireworks the last three days leading up to 4th of July and keeping young children up. I might be bitter a little bit. I don't know. Before we jump in today, I want to remind you of something coming up in a few weeks here in the Life of Our Church. Every year we set aside a few days, seven days, um, and we look to have our Super Bowl, if you will, of our uh, community impact value at our church. We believe uh, passionately that we are not just supposed to be in our community, but we are supposed to be for our community. Amen, Sherry. 
Amen. And so every year, we take an entire week, July 16th to 22, and we go crazy with service projects all across our city to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be the gospel embodied, if you will. That's kind of what we want to do in this week. We serve year-round all the time. If you're looking for something to do outside of the normal ministry rhythms, I can tell you right now, Sherry has things that plug you into that you could be doing um, most days of the week, serving the people that need help or partners that are looking to meet the needy in our city here. Um, but we have like 29 service projects that are available right now with opportunities for any age or skill level. So if you're like me and you're young but you have minimal amounts of skill, there is a place for you. If you are someone that's maybe on the older range of age but you have a ton of experience, there's a place for you. Um, in morning, evening, afternoons, whatever it is, there is a hole for you to fill and to be a part of this week. We love to see a thousand people be mobilized from our church. We get close to that every year. Um, so right now we have, a, I think, 700 people who are jumping in, unique individuals. If you want to be a double dipper, by all means, do what you want. But we love for people to jump in and at least take one slot of availability and just help us accomplish the mission that we feel God has called us to be um, in our community, to be for it, not just in it. Especially, there's another opportunity tied with this. The LSR7 school district has reached out to us and asked us to help supply school needs school needs for about 100 um, ESL students who are mostly refugees. They're coming in here about to start the school year and they are in need of some supplies. And so thank God that we have a reputation as a church in our community that they can reach out to us and say, hey, we know you care about people. Will you help us accomplish this? That's a great thing, amen? Because they know, they should know, Jesus followers take care of people. That's what we do. We are for people. And so if you're someone who wants to help with that in any shape or form, the Serve Week banner is going to be out in the lobby. You might have seen it or walked by it when you went to go check in your kids or when you came into the building. Go check it out. Sherry and her team would absolutely love for you to come and talk with her, get information about where you can serve. Just look at the options. Look what's out there. Weigh them out. Figure out what's in your schedule in the next couple weeks. Um, and if you want to help with the, the, the supplies drive, we would love that too. You can sign up there as well. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 25. Uh, that's where we're going to be living today. We're kicking off uh, week six of a, of a series we've been in called Kingdom Come. We've spent six weeks now talking about the return of Jesus and the end times. It sounds ominous, but it's awesome. We've been learning what it looks like, what to be looking out for, how to be prepared, what do we need to be doing in the meantime, how are we going to know when this is all going to go down. We have learned a lot in five weeks. And in week six, we are now going to be starting Matthew 25. And we're going to be talking for the last three weeks of this series about three different parables that Jesus is going to be using to really drive home the point for us today to know how to live our lives. Because we understand that understanding what that day will look like informs how to live today. We know that having a snapshot of the future helps us live in the present. And so as we look at these truths that Jesus is unpacking for us and showing us, we are going to take them, apply it to our lives, and though we may not be around when this happens, we still today can live as though it can happen at any moment. So Matthew 25 is going to be our passage today, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. All the scripture will be behind me on the screens, all the notes and the slides that we have. You can follow along with us in your notes as well. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 says this. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. Verse 9, no, they replied. 
There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Verse 11, later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you, don't know, you do not know the day or the hour. If you're here with us last week, we talked a little bit about repetition. Uh, Jesus in these passages from Matthew 24 and 25 is clearly trying to get us to understand and lean in to this reality that we don't know when he's going to return. He doesn't know. Angels don't know. You and I don't know. Only the Father knows. And it's not an issue of trying to figure out when that's going to happen. It's just living in the tension that it could happen at any moment. And because of that, it should inform how we live our lives. Now, I understand and I know that you're probably wondering, as we just read that passage, you're wanting to know, what's up with all this virgin talk? If you're not wondering that, I wondered that when I read it and realized that to say virgin a ton of times on stage, I got a little uncomfortable, okay? So I'm going to give you some background to why we are talking about this and what Jesus is trying to do with his image. So in the first century for Jewish custom, a wedding usually had three phases, an engagement, a betrothal, and then a wedding um, ceremony or banquet. The bride and his, or the groom and his friends, we would call them groomsmen today, they would um, go and leave their home that the groom has been preparing for him and his bride, and they would go to where the bride was with her bridesmaids or the virgins. They were, back in that day, assumed to be um, chaste young women. So by definition, they were virgins, but they were acting as if they were bridesmaids in our modern-day weddings today. They would go there. They'd have a wedding ceremony, usually at night, which is why they had lamps that need to be lit. A lot of people actually think these were torches. And after they, the ceremony would be done, the bridal party would then return to the groom's house that he prepared for him and his bride. They would go in, and they would have a private celebratory banquet. Jesus is using this picture to again depict for us how we need to be prepared for his return. Um, oftentimes in New Testament, you'll see that a, a picture used to describe the return of Jesus or us going to him in heaven and being joined together forever in eternity is that of marriage. Um, Ephesians 5, one of the greatest passages in the Bible on marriage and the roles of husband and wife, is actually built around the relationship between the church and Jesus. In fact, what we see is that marriage is really just a shadow of a greater reality, pointing to us to the glorious future we have to spend eternity with our groom, Jesus. And so that's what he's doing here a little bit in the same sense. He's taking this very familiar custom to his disciples and he's showing them what it's like for you to be wise or for you to be foolish, for you to be prepared. So let me give you a quick parable key that's going to give some definitions of what some aspects are in the parable that are going to be helpful for us as we unpack them today. I'll put them on the screen for you. We already know that the, the groom is Jesus. The ten virgins or br bridesmaids, as I will be referring to them from now on, would be believers. It would be you and me in the room. Um, and the, the lamps that they talk about would be considered and representative of our outward life. And the oil is going to be representative of our inward faith or inward life. That's what we're going to see as we unpack this passage. It's going to become more and more clear that that's how this parable is constructed. And from this, we can draw some incredible applications to our lives that I think we need to hear today. So before you jump into it, let me give you a 30,000-foot view of a big idea that I would say this passage is kind of teaching us as a lesson today as followers of Jesus, and it's this. We are personally responsible to be spiritually prepared for the return of Jesus. You and I are personally responsible. Those are probably the two most important words in that phrase. To be spiritually prepared for the return of Jesus. Now, we've talked a lot about this, right? 
We've talked a lot about being prepared and ready and what that looks like. But today is going to be a little bit more of a different angle that Jesus is going to take that's going to be, I think, refreshing and challenging. But the question I want to ask that I think the parable begs is what makes us wise and foolish? Right? You read the parable, and there's clearly a, a good and bad ending to the group of the bridesmaids. The wise ones, they get into the banquet. The foolish ones don't. I want to be in the group of wise. I may not be a wise person. I might be a fool myself, but I want to know how can I be in this group of wise bridesmaids that made it into the banquet where they wanted to be, where they belonged. And I think there's two things that we can learn about the wise that they do that we can apply to our life. And the first one is this. The wise understand the priority of the inner life. The wise understand the priority of the inner life. Remember the terms that I gave you, that parable key of the lamp and the oil being the external and internal life. But we see the wise that they're going to prioritize the inner. Matthew 25, 1 through 5 says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are foolish, five are wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. So what's the difference between the wise and foolish? It's really simple. One group of them brought oil. The other did not. They both had the necessary vessel, but the foolish crowd did not bring the necessary contents. And a lamp without oil is useless. And here's what I appreciate about this, because so far in the series, we have talked a lot about what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, how to prepare, how not to prepare, all these things. A lot of doing has been in our conversation the last six weeks now. And those things are appropriate and helpful and needed to be understood because Jesus calls us to live these things out. But we have to understand that before we get to the external works, there is an internal life that requires attention. There is something else underneath everything else that if we don't get that right, everything else is going to fall apart. See, the lamps in the parable, they represent the outward life. For them and their custom, the lamp-holding bridesmaids would show to the people that they were kind of guests of honor. Just like today at our normal weddings right now. If you have groomsmen and bridesmaids, they're up there on the ceremony next to the bride and groom. They're seated usually in the reception around them as well. They are the closest acquaintances of the bride and groom, and they are in a place of honor. In the same way, the lamps would have served that way to show that they were special guests, that they belonged to be there. So some of us today, we may look the part, right? We may go to church every week. We may never miss a week of church. No matter what holiday or football game is on or family members in town, we're going to church. One way or the other, we might go to church twice a day. We don't know. We might spend our whole Sunday at church. We might serve in several areas. We might tithe a lot. We might be the best church member you could possibly imagine. But some of us may not have taken the oil needed to continue in the long run. You say, well, what's our oil today? What does that look like? What does that mean? How do we make sure we have our oil? And here's how I would say our oil is. Our oil today is found in our daily relationship with Jesus. Our oil today is found in our daily relationship with Jesus. A lot of important words there. Look, you and I need to understand that we are not called to a life to try and live it in our own strength and power. As hard as we can. That's not what Jesus has called you and I to. He hasn't called us just to do all the right things and avoid the wrong things. It's not a life of doing. The Christian life is at its core surrounded around a relationship and empowered around and through a relationship with Jesus. That is what Christianity is. It's a key mark 
character trait of our faith. You may have heard it said before that people was like, I don't actually like the word religion. Christianity is a relationship, right? And I would agree to some extent. I think that's an accurate description, that my faith is much more geared around a relationship than it is a list of do's and don'ts. It includes those things, but at its core, there's a relationship that needs some attention, that is under all of it. And it's how we're supposed to be living. I'll prove it to you using Jesus' own words in John 15. Some of my favorite passages and verses in the Bible that I think helps inform how we should live our daily lives. Jesus here says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a whole lot of nothing. That is a spiritual reality that is true for every single person in this room. You can do nothing apart from Jesus. Now in this passage, he gives a few different roles, doesn't he? He describes three different people, a gardener, a vine, and a branch. Let's just, for sake of simplicity, let's just define these things. If you Googled what these things were, this is what you would get. A gardener, or sometimes it translated a vine dresser, is someone who prunes, trains, and cultivates plants or vines. It's the person responsible for making the plant all it's supposed to be. It has the power to do that. It's overseeing it. It's nurturing it. That's the gardener's role. The vine is the one that's producing the life and fruit through its branches. The branch, guess what it does? It's a part of the plant that grows out of the vine to bear the fruit. You say, that's fantastic news. What's the point? Here's the point. You and I need to learn to stay in our lane. To know what we are and what we aren't. What our job is and what our job isn't. We are not the gardener. We're not the vine dresser. You and me are not ultimately responsible to make our life into something that we think it should be. That's the gardener's job. He's the one that's shaping and growing us. We're not the vine. We're not the one that by our effort and strength produce the fruit and life that we think we should have. We are a branch. And our one job is to simply abide in Jesus. That's your task today. That's the call in your life today is to abide in him, which is another way I would say that we stay awake and ready and alert and prepared for Jesus to return by spending time with Jesus today. Because even though he's away physically, because of the spirit that he's given us, we can commune with him right here and right now. Every moment of our life. Listen, the single most important thing you and I can do in this life is spend transformational time alone with Jesus. Not just time in the word. Not just make sure you get your reading plan done for the day. Not just spending some time in prayer. Not just going to church. Not just having small group, not serving. Those are all great things that should flow out of our life in relation with Jesus. But transformational time is getting alone, uninterrupted, quietly with him in his presence. Communing with him. That is what we are called to do as branches. That's your job. And everything Jesus wants to do in and through you, he's going to do out of those abiding moments. What he's calling you to, the plans and purposes that he created you for, that he wants you to do, guess where that's going to come through? Abiding. Remaining in him. That's the job description. 
And oftentimes, unfortunately, we get that backwards. A wonderful book that I recommend to you that uh, if you want to dive into this, just a great devotional book is called The Indwelling Life of Christ by Major Ian Thomas. It's the first book actually I was given when I started to be mentored by my mentor back when I was 18, first following Jesus. Love that book. Changed my life. You should pick it up if you can. But in the book, he writes of an illustration of something that maybe some of you have experienced in your life today. You have actually been this person or have, have helped someone in this situation. He describes a situation where there's someone who was on the side of the road and their cars ran out of gas, right? Anyone been there before? A lot of responsible people in the room or a lot of shame people in the room. I, I can't tell. Have you ever helped someone who's ran out of gas? Oh, yeah, look at all of us in the room, yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, good Samaritans over here. We've been in the situations, you've heard of it, people are trying to, to get to a gas station, he's ran out of gas, and so the man in the story goes, helps push his car, tows his car to the gas station, in the kindness of his heart, pays the bill for the gasoline to fill up his tank, sets him on his way, gets in his car, and before he drives off, he looks behind him, and he sees to his shock that instead of this man getting in his car, turning the key and driving, he's once again behind the car, pushing with all of his effort, trying to make the car go. And he's thinking, what is this person doing? We just filled up the car with gas. It's heavier than it was before. That's not how it's supposed to work. Put the key in. Drive it. Major Ian Thomas would say that's a lot of times how we live the Christian life. That we don't take advantage of what's been given to us. He goes on to write this. He says, when you and I received Christ as our Redeemer, he gave us, through his Holy Spirit, the fullness and power of his resurrection. He has given us everything we could ever need at any time under any circumstance. He gave us a car with a full tank. Have you instead been trying to push it? Whenever the gasoline is gone, it's not time for new upholstery, new spark plugs, or new tires. It's time to fill up the tank. Likewise, if our spiritual tank is empty, it's time to fill it. With what? With Christ. Listen, I don't know where you are today or what you feel today, if you're running on fumes, if every day is getting longer and harder, waking up is more difficult, you're feeling like you're trying harder and it's getting more difficult in your life and you're just exerting all this effort and it's never coming back to you and you're just more and more frustrated and you're at the end of your rope, I want to tell you what the solution to your problem is today. It's not more time watching Netflix. It's not going on a really nice vacation. It's not doling your senses with food or drink. It's not getting a good gossip session with your friends or coworkers. It's not buying something new. It's not getting more money. Your solution today is getting alone with Jesus. That is the answer to your problem today. That's the answer to the sustaining power of your life as a Christian, to be alone with him, to abide with him. Can we just thank God for some simplicity today? Of all the things that we've talked about doing, this is the easiest one that we can think through of like, okay, this, is, this seems kind of low-hanging fruit, but this is the engine of our lives. And don't hear me today as someone up here that's like mastered this. I can be incredibly inconsistent. I'm a father of young children. Mom's out there. You got young kids. You are like, I don't know what quiet means. I understand, okay? Listen, one day will be better. I'm currently behind in the reading plan. Please don't tell my boss that. I don't always have the best days consistently spending time with Jesus. And sometimes I spend time with Jesus and it's just to get through it. I'm still figuring this out. And I'm so thankful for the Psalms. David, the man after God's own heart. He can write things in the Bible like, man, that he loves God. It's his treasure, that it's a portion of his life forever. He wants nothing else on earth but him. And then the next Psalm, he's like, I don't even know if you exist anymore. I don't know if I believe in you. I am so thankful for David because that's me. 
That's me some days where I'm like, I don't even know if I believe this anymore. I don't know if you look at my life and you think I believe this anymore. Man, I'm just in a rut right now. And there's other days, man, it feels like it just comes easy. But I got to keep coming back to this simple truth that the main call in my life is not to be a successful pastor or father or husband or a good person. It's to abide in Christ. That's it. And you get that right. I'm just confident, absolutely confident on the authority of God's word. The rest of it will fall into place. There's no way that you can have transformational time with Jesus and it not change you from the inside out. That's not possible. And the wise understood that. They prioritized the inner life by abiding in Christ daily. They had enough oil for the trip. That's important because the second thing the wise did, the wise have an awareness of where they stand spiritually. They have an awareness of where they stand spiritually. As you go through the parable in 6 through 13, what we're going to see is that the wise were set up for success because they knew where they were at relationally with the Lord. Look what it says in Matthew 25, 6 through 13. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. They may, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go out to those who sell oil and get yourself some. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, they come back with oil, and they say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. So what we see in this passage is a few things regarding our own faith and why it's so important that we understand our own responsibility here. This is where we really see the difference come to life, where we fill in the blanks a little bit with what this parable is getting at here. I think there's two things that we can learn from this passage that we can apply concerning our own faith. And the first one is this. Our faith must be our own. Our faith must be our own. The foolish wake up. They have no oil for the lamp, so they ask to borrow some from the wise group. And they say no. And it may seem like they're being rude, but really they're just saying that's not possible. We don't have enough for both you and me. We have enough for ourselves individually. There's not a transfer here. What it's showing us is that you and I do not get into heaven on the faith of those around us. No matter who your parents are, your grandparents, your friends, how good of a pastor you serve under or the church you attend, you and I don't get to heaven because we are around those people. That's not how this works. I have friends in my life. My best friend has a story that he was a pastor's kid raised in the church around Christianity his whole life. And as a teenager, 17 years old, he realized, I never made a decision to follow Jesus. I'm lost. He thought being around Christianity and being in church was the same as being a Christian. And he had to understand that his faith had to become his own. To have a moment of surrendering his life to the Lord. So in the spirit of just making sure that we cover all of our bases, I want to go through some quick facts regarding salvation that we may all know, but it's helpful just to make sure that we cover our bases. Here's some things to make sure we understand. The first one is this. No one is born already saved and made right with God. There's no one on the planet outside of Jesus that was born, saved, and made right with God. Jesus would teach us in John 3, he would say that you and I have to be born again by the Spirit to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not born by flesh, not by our mom or dad. We have to be born again of the Holy Spirit of God. 
John would say in 1 John 1.10 that if we say we have no sin in us, we make him a liar. And that's important because the second point here, everyone is born into sin and in need of a Savior. That's the baseline for humanity right now. We're all on the same playing field, praise God. No, no one is much different here. We are all broken, sinful, dead in our sins, needing a Savior. Romans 3.10.11 says that there's none who are righteous, no one's good. No one is seeking God, no one wants God. And verse 23 says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are at odds with him from the beginning of our lives. Listen, if you serve in kids' ministry, know someone who has kids or have had kids, you know this. They are not born angels. And they don't grow into angels without a lot of effort and pain and time and teaching. Because we come into this world broken. And the only way that we are saved is by repenting of our sins and confessing faith in Jesus. Peter, in his famous sermon that he gave at Pentecost in Acts 2, he cut to the heart of some people who just done horribly wicked things, and they say, what do we do now? And he says, repent and be baptized, receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write in Romans 10, 13, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the catch. they got to be able to hear about it to respond. they got to respond to it, though. Our faith has got to be our own. And every Christian on the planet will have this story. They were not born saved, no matter how good of a family they're born into. They were born sinful, broken. And at some point in their life, they heard the gospel of Jesus and what he came to do for them. And they saw the horribleness of their sin, the brokenness of their life, and they surrendered it to him and followed him. Every Christian in some shape or form has that story. Our faith has got to be our own. We can't transfer it to other people. The second thing we learn is that our faith and life should be consistent. The faith that we have and the life that we have should be, and I believe will be, consistent if we have the right kind of faith. Listen, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus, the true inner life, we'll hear the same thing as a foolish in verses 11 and 12 where Jesus says, I don't know you. See, what we learn here is that what's true about the bridesmaids is true about a lot of Christians. They all can look the same outside. You cannot tell the difference externally sometimes. That's not only true about them, it's also true about some cakes in the world. Follow me here. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a growing movement in our country and world of people becoming frighteningly good at making things look real that are actually cake. In fact, you may have not heard this before, but on Netflix, a show, I've never watched it, but clearly it's titled, Is It Cake?, it's a show dedicated to this reality. There's people who literally try to fool other people by making objects, either other food objects or other objects that should not be food, and try to get people to see if they can tell the difference of if it's, if it's real or not real. It's that good, and people fail a lot. You want to see it sometimes, just Google images of realistic cakes online. You'll find them. I got a few of them on the screen behind me for you to look at with me. Look at these things. This is unbelievable. That's a bag of Doritos. I would pick that up and try to open it and have cake all over my hands. What's going on with that pickle? That's a pickle. There's pickle juice there, but it's chocolate cake. That watermelon looks like you can pick it up at Price Chopper. You can get it for this weekend for 4th of July, and it's cake. It's unbelievable. You're wondering, what are we talking about here? <laughs> Listen, the same way with these cakes. What they're illustrating for us is sometimes externally you can't tell a difference. It's that good. 
But when you cut into it, what you find the difference is inside. What is real and what's not. For us today, that's why this inner life is so important. We, no one here wants to hear those words from Jesus, I don't know you. Which is why I know it's a relational dynamic because he's saying the difference here is not necessarily the oil, but that they know them. That there's a relationship there. So for us today, how do we avoid having this moment? How do we, how do we protect ourselves? We've got to know where we stand spiritually. And Paul has this thought too when he writes to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. See, Paul understood that there is a chance that we could be deceived. There's a chance that we could be delusioned in thinking that we may or may not be saved. And so he says it's a healthy thing for you to do sometimes in your life. Just take spiritual inventory. What's going on inside? What is inside? Is Jesus in you? Are you in Jesus? Because that's the deciding factor here. That's why this is so important. The parable talks about people that look the part but don't have real faith. And Jesus actually talked about this in Matthew 7, earlier in the gospel. Look what he said. He said, many will say to me on that day, talking about the end times, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. This is shocking stuff. I would love to do these things. Perform miracles. Prophesy, speak on behalf of God, cast out demons to free people in the name of Jesus. But how crazy is it to do that and not yourself be freed? And Jesus says, there's some people that are going to be, man, awesome in the church. They're going to do all the right things. They're going to be our top volunteers. But they're not careful. They can get to the end here. And they may have thought they were really in when they were not. It looked real on the outside, but internally was not life but death. You can do all the right things and still miss it. Which is why it's so important that the inward life connects to the outward life. James says it this way in James 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of them says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. I hope you figure that out later on in life but does nothing about the physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accomplished by action, is dead. James is not arguing that you and me are saved by works. He's saying this, that real faith will work. That's what he's saying here. That's the reality that's present in this passage here. That just like lamps of the oil is useless, a faith without a life to match it is useless. And it's showing you what is actually inside. Back in November, we did a great series called Blessed Assurance. We talked about this, man. We talked about, man, how do we know if we are or aren't saved? We went through the, the book of 1 John, which extensively teaches on this. It's helped me in my own personal life when I wasn't sure if I was saved. To know if I, if I could have assurance of that. If you're someone today and you're not really sure where you stand, if you're a little shook today by this, I encourage you, man, talk to someone. Go watch that series. It will be helpful to you. But let me give you two quick fruits that I would say that are evidences of our salvation. Not the only ones, but I would say at a bare minimum, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you, I believe there's two non-negotiable things that should be present in your life. The first one is a love for God that results in obedience and a hatred of sin that results in the presence of a struggle. The Bible teaches us that no one apart from God can actually follow him and love him 
and obey him. No one wants to do that, and you can't do that unless you have the Spirit of God in you. So to be able to even desire those things and to do those things is evidence that there is the Spirit of God within. But it also tells us in Galatians 5 that the flesh is within us. And when we get saved, the Spirit then comes in and begins to wage war against the flesh of our bodies, the sin in us. And so we, we hate the sin in our lives, and we start to wrestle and struggle with it. It's not perfection. It doesn't mean that you do those things incredibly well every day. You're going to look like some days you've never done it before. You're going to make progress, and you're going to backslide because we're not perfect. That's not yet the life that we're living in. We're in this already net yet of Jesus saving us and empowering us, but, man, it's just not over yet. But we can have victory in it. A love for God that results in obedience and a hatred for sin that results in the presence of a struggle. Jesus said that the same way in John 14, that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's always been tied. It's always been connected. Here's the point for us today. Our faith should be evident to the world through significant and continual life change. Our faith should be evident to the world externally through significant and continual life change. I don't get that wrong. That does not mean that you're making leaps and bounds every day of your life. But over time, as you abide in Jesus, as you follow his way, your life will change. You will change. The inward reality of your faith will pour out of you. And sadly, there's a lot of Christians today that don't have this going for them, that really don't have the inward life but only have the external part, and the impact is evident. I was not born around the time this band came together, so I'm going to date myself, but DC Talk once had a song in 1995 release that began with an incredible quote by a man called Brennan Manning that said this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I would agree with him in this. I think one of the biggest struggles of the church that we have is a lot of people who are claiming the name of Jesus, but their life is completely devoid of it. And so people who don't believe in him don't want to believe in Christianity because those who say that they do believe in it live a life that denies it. So why should they believe it? But what we have to understand for us today is that the more that we get closer to the return of Jesus, we must cultivate that inner life that will lead to a compelling one. It always starts internally, but it will always flow out externally. So for us today to be responsible, to be prepared, to be like the wise, we got to make sure that we prioritize that inner life, that daily abiding relationship. Just go back to the basics. Look at your calendar this week. Figure out how to get in the presence of God seven days straight. Just start with one, then two. Be long with him. We also have to understand where we are spiritually. Take some inventory in your life. Understand your faith has got to be your own, not on the backs of those around you. And that our faith and life should be consistent, intermingled, and evident to the world. What has God spoken to you today? What do you need to do? As we always do at the end of our service, we're going to take a time of reflection, but today's a little bit special because it's the first week of the month. We're going to have a time of communion together. We're going to ask the ushers to come up and give them their places. In just a moment here, we're going to begin 
a time of reflection with three different questions and a minute of time just to help you kind of talk this through with the Lord and just process the things that you've heard. And as that happens, the ushers are going to bring you a cup of communion. And afterwards, they'll come up and I'll lead us through this time. Communion is a practice given to this to the church as believers to use to remember and proclaim what Jesus has done for us in our life. And so I'll pray for us in this time. I'll let you have a few moments alone with the Lord, and I'll come back, lead us through communion, and we'll be dismissed today. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. God, I pray right now for every person in this room. Lord, whether they are on the mountaintop with you or they're in the valley or they're somewhere in between, God, would you give us a hunger for you? Would you give us a fire for you afresh to desire you, to get in your presence? God, I pray right now for those people in the room that may be in that group of the foolish that they may not realize this, but Lord, they're not actually a part of you. You're not in them. God, I pray that you would open eyes today. As we sit and we reflect and meditate, God, I pray that you would reveal to us where we are spiritually and what steps we need to take out of that. So be with us in this time, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now there's a few people in the back still getting their, their cups. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together with his disciples to have one final meal. And they were having it during um, Passover, which was an event that took place actually thousands of years before the people of Israel when they were slaves of Egypt. If you know a little bit of that story, there's ten plagues that take place. And the final plague, God tells Pharaoh, because he won't let his people go, he's going to send um, an angel through the city to take away the firstborn child. And the only way to be protected was to take a lamb and take its blood and put it around the doorposts of a home. And because of that, they would be passed over that night and protected from the plague. Later on now, what we have in Jesus is that perfect Passover lamb. One who has helped us to be made right with God so that his wrath would pass over you and I. And so in that moment, he took bread, probably a wafer-like substance, a little bit bigger than this one, but kind of like this. And he broke it, and he would give his disciples and tell them to take of it and eat, because it's his body broken for them. What this symbolizes for us in Scripture, we know that by Jesus' stripes, by his wounds, it tells us that we are healed. That as he went through and to the cross, the beatings and bruises he sustained, the death that he went through, ultimately led to you and I being healed and made alive. And so now today, we not only rejoice that there's a renewing presence in our own life, but also around us and flowing out of us into people that we know and love. There's hope for people today. No matter how broken spiritually they come into this world, they can be made whole because of Jesus' body being broken for them. So God, thank you so much for your body. Thank you for dying for us and offering yourself up as a sacrifice for our sin and brokenness so that we could be made whole and healed. We pray that you help us to be a renewing presence around those in our lives, in our communities, in our families, God. Because of what you've done for us, Lord, not only us, but others can be healed and made whole. We love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Afterwards, he took a cup. He gave his disciples and he told them that this cup was his blood of the new covenant. We're thankful today to be in a brand new covenant, not the old one. The old one had a robust sacrificial system that attempted to constantly atone and rid ourselves of the sin that resided inside but could never do it effectively. It would postpone the wrath of God and punish it for sin for a time, but it could never be a sufficient cause to make us right with him. Until Jesus came and like that perfect Passover lamb, his blood is sufficient to cover you and I today. So no matter what we've done, what you've done today, this past week, what you're going to go do in the future, what you can know today is that Jesus' blood is able and sufficient to cover you, to forgive you, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We have that promise because of the cross. There's a song that my church back home wrote one time. I don't know where they got the inspiration from, but it says that there's more grace in Jesus than there's sin inside of me. And that's true for us today. There is never a lack of grace because of the blood of Jesus in our life. So God, thank you so much for that beautiful reality that seems too good to be true, but is true. That no matter how many times we stumble and fall, no matter what we have done, every person is able to be forgiven and cleansed and made right before you. We thank you for your blood today that is still covering us even right now and into the future. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God, thank you for 
the Lord's Supper and for this practice to remember what you've done for us. God, thank you that we are here today by grace through faith. Help us now as we leave to remember that. To no matter what we've done, to not run from you but run to you. To press in and abide, to remain in you. God, show us our next steps. What are you calling us to do today? What needs to change? Would you give us courage and faith and boldness to step out and to do exactly that? We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jeremy, before I let you go, a couple things to remember. First off, for your first time guests, don't forget, take that connection card, fill it out, and go to the Connection Center so we can donate $10 on your behalf to Refuge KC. We'd love to talk with you, just connect with you. Um, if you're someone who needs spiritual care, we will have a team up at the front ready to receive you, to pray for you, talk with you. You can set a time um, on your schedule later this week to have a little bit more of space to talk about some stuff, but they will not leave the room until everyone has left. And make sure to go and stop by the Serve Week banner out there. Sherry and her team would love to talk with you, just show you the options and opportunities that we have. You can sign up to be donors for that supply drive. Um, but don't miss out on this awesome week of our church coming up on April or July 16th to 22nd. Have a great week, and we will see you next weekend. You're dismissed.